And welcome back. George Norrie with you. Phil Webster with us. We're talking about Phil's book, Letting Glow. His website is his name. He spells it with two L's, F-I-F-P-I-L-L-F-P-H-I-L-L-P-H-I-L-L. I'm sorry. Phil with two L's. Phil, what do you say about consciousness with all this? I think that that's really the key, um, and I think that just going back to what I was saying about um, meditation, that that's kind of really where you can experience that firsthand. Um, and, and again, I'm not the first person to talk about this, um, but when you can step back from your thoughts and kind of not get caught up in this, uh, you know, almost like a marching band walking by, right? We, we've just got these thoughts constantly bombarding us like day and night. And it's relentless when you start taking notice of it. You know, you, you might go outside and see someone in a red T-shirt. And that'll remind you of somebody at school who bows you and wore a red T-shirt or something like that. And then you're trying to go about your business. And there's all these things swirling around in your head. And it's easy to become sort of just, just either blind to it or then uh, caught up in it. And, and I think that when we're able to take the time to step back and recognize that we're not our thoughts, you know, that we're this kind of backseat driver that's always there then that's really tapping into consciousness. And yeah, I, I believe that that is, is what transcends this life and, and goes on to the next. Why couldn't you see these spiritual signs much earlier in your life? Yeah, that's an interesting question. No one's asked me that, actually, and I'm not sure if I've even considered it um, at, at, its, at face value. I, I suppose um, I got caught up in my own ego very much so. Um, I sort of would I don't know. I, I think that, yeah, somewhere around my mid-30s, I probably wasn't finding satisfaction in what I was doing. And I think that when you get to like a, a landmark age, like say 30 or 40 or, or even 50 or 60, that perhaps you kind of reevaluate things and sort of take stock of where you are and, and where you thought you might be at that point. And, and I, I guess I was kind of very dissatisfied with the way that I was living. And, and I was very much living from, a, from an ego-driven perspective. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that, that being able to sort of, I don't, I don't know, I, we all sort of have moments of crisis and things like that. And I think that you've got this voice that, that steps in, you know, let's say that to just jump subject a little bit, let's say if you get involved in an accident, um, I don't know if anyone's experienced this, but there's this there seems to be this like voice of reason that will kind of cut through everything and just sort of let you know the, the basics, what you need, what you need to know in that time. And, and that's really that inner voice that I think that we should all pay more attention to. Let's take some calls for you as they line up. Let's go to John in Wisconsin to get us started. Hey, John, welcome. Hello, George. Hello, Phil. Hi. Just a brief comment that echoes Phil's wisdom. Um, I've had my share of self-induced setbacks. And through each one of those, I developed intuition that guided me towards peace and harmony and wisdom. And Phil has many good points tonight, and I just wanted to highlight two takeaways. Number one, you have to have balance, and Phil explained that very, very well. Then you need to do something about it, whether you have a setback from a mental illness or a psychological problem or a social problem. If you do nothing, you'll digress. If you do something, let that intuition channel your energy to find peace and harmony. And that's what I have done, and my life is much better because of my setbacks and using my intuition correctly. And my last thing, I just wanted to encourage all the Coast to Coast listeners to get Phil's book. I think they will find it most helpful, uh, not for yourself, for your family members, for your friends, 
There is help out there, and Phil's resource is a great example of it. Gentlemen, those are my comments, and thank you both for all you do. Thank you, John. Phil, would you like to react to some of that? Well, thank you so much. Thank you for the endorsement, first of all. Um, I, I really appreciate that, and I really like what uh, what you said about the, the self-induced setbacks. I think we can all relate to, to self-sabotage and, and procrastination and all these things. And, and also, yeah, there's definitely some truth in uh, that I believe from personal experience in you know, people talk about manifesting your best life and this and that, but it, it's not just about sort of sitting back and, and, you know, writing on a mood board what you want to appear in your life. You, you have to genuinely take the first steps. So, you know, manifestation is, is, is a real thing and, and everything sort of evolves from a thought or an idea of where we want to go. But we need to put those things into action, at least take the first steps. And, yeah, I think that was really insightful there. What age should we be teaching children all of this? That's an interesting question. I, I've got a feeling that I'm going to lean towards this, um, and, and I shouldn't sort of perhaps set myself up here, but I, I feel that there's a book in that. I feel that there's a book in that. I think that when we can really reconnect with our own childhood selves, you know, then then I, I really love the question of like, what would your childhood self be? Would they be proud of you right now if they could see where you were in your life? Would you be doing what you thought you would be doing back when you were a kid? And I think that's really key. You know, when, when we're open to everything and, and just, you know, life feels like a gift and, and, and an adventure, I think that it, it wouldn't hurt at all to, to just teach children to, to connect with their intuition and really go with that um, rather than just, you know, sort of following the, the cookie-cutter format, you know. Um, I don't want to sort of lean towards any sort of conspiratorial talk but yeah i i think that you know we're all born with this innate sense of knowing knowing and and, and then mediumship as well i think that you know some might argue that, that this isn't the case but i believe we've all got these um, these intuitive abilities that we kind of get drilled out of us so yeah i, th- I think making children aware of of their own uh, of being in touch with themselves would be a, a great thing to do let's go to joe long island new york joseph take it away yeah hi so i got a Cut, like maybe three things to bring up briefly. Uh, the first thing is, uh, you know, the issue of intuition. I don't know if it's that reliable because uh, I, I think it, you, you make note of it, but sometimes uh, you might write off an opportunity too quickly. And another thing, based on intuition, and it might have been an actual option or opportunity, and then uh, another thing I noticed in, in uh, listening to some self-help audiobooks recently is uh, they really do not do too much on risk appraisal. And, you know, I think that that's like kind of an area that people need to be a little bit more aware of. Like there's so many risks out there in all different forms that there needs to be something where you have to appraise this risk as you go along. And the second thing I want to bring up is also uh, angels. I think angels do appear as people, but I think maybe you can ask for that potentially, uh, and maybe you might get an angel that would show up briefly. It might not be uh, something uh, critical, but it could be just evidence that they're there. And, And the third thing is dreams. I think Dreams do boil, like conflicts, inner conflicts do boil over into dreams. 
But there's a lot of mystery in terms of who who is the stranger in the dreams, and then how do dreams do this virtual reality stuff where all of a sudden you know your environment is really a virtual reality environment? Thoughts on that, Phil? I really like uh, what you said about about sort of analyzing the intuition. I think there's definitely something to that. Um, Again, we are, after all, having this physical experience, and, and there's there's obviously something there's something that we're here to do, and, and we are, you know, we we're, we're given all these gifts. We live in this physical life, so yeah, to just sort of run with every intuitive thought, yeah, that that's a very good point, and and it's wise to take caution. I think that as again, I'm sorry, I'm a, a little bit like a broken record with this, but well, no, that's right. <laughs> Um, when we sort of get more adapt uh, at learning to recognize what's intuition and what's not, and you know, we're, or, or impulse, or you know, sort of trying to trying to find the balance between impulse and intuition, and it, you know, it's going to take some time. Um, uh, from my own experience, which is, which is all I can really speak from, and, and some people that I've learned from, I think the better we get at that, the more things seem to flow in the right direction. I'm not saying that every decision I've ever made in recent years has been the right one, um, but there seems to be a theme of, of being honest with myself, like, you know, know, knowing who you are and then going with the decision based on that, you know, what serves your best interest. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, there are definitely charlatans out there and people trying to take advantage of us. And, and, in, and in this, you know, world as well, the spirituality, you know, we have to sort of um, show some discernment to, to who we put our trust in. Yeah. Does it make you a better person? I would like to think so. I would like to think so. I, I would think, think so, yeah. If we're really honest with ourselves, then we sort of come back to our true nature and, and get the ego out of the way. Um, and those things that we've learned along the way. And, and, and hopefully, I think when we get back to that core self, we're essentially good, right? I think that people are generally good. Um, I might not have said that 10 years ago. I definitely had a very different view on, on life, but that was coming from a, a sort of fearful, ego-driven um, point of view. Let's go to Brendan in Austin, Texas. Take it away, Brendan. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, perfect. All right. I had two quick stories of using intuition to avoid car accidents. And the first one, I was driving, and it was very similar to the story that you've told, George, where you had a feeling at the green light at and the uh, you didn't yeah. go. And I, it was green for me, and I had a feeling that there was going to be somebody in the road in front of me. I just had a really strong feeling that somebody was going to be in the road. So I didn't go. And I started to slow down significantly. Like the speed limit was 50 miles an hour. And I started slowing down to like 25. And sure enough, a guy came out of the blackness, smoking a cigarette and all black, just, you know, like a just homeless guy, not caring about anything. You know, he probably wanted to die, but something told me not to hit him. And it saved his life. It saved me a lot of trouble too. And that's listening to your own gut. But the other story was I have my girlfriend, and she has a cousin who passed away very tragically at a young age. And she told me I we kind of have, like, a special connection with that cousin, even though I've never met him. I just kind of have an attachment. Like, I think I care for her so much that he cares for me because I care for her, if that makes sense. But um, she was telling me that, she felt his presence and that he was saying to not leave in the car. I was, I was about to drop her off at work and she said, don't leave, don't leave. And she was very upset about it. 
And I said, okay, like, if you're really that upset and you have that strong of a feeling, like, I'll, I'll listen. I'll just hang out and talk to you for, like, 10 minutes. And I did, and then I left. And a quarter mile down the road, there was a horrible rollover right where I would have been at that exact time. I mean, I came up, and the dust was still settling. People were running out of the cars, you know, to go to find the car that was upside down. Oh. And I would have been right in the middle of that if I wouldn't have listened to her. So you got to listen to not only your own intuition, but your loved ones, too. When they tell you something and they're very adamant about it, it is important to listen to them. Because as the guest said, uh, a, a truth comes out. A voice just comes out in those moments when you need them and you have to listen. Phil, who is that voice? Is it us? Is it a guide? What is it? Interesting question. Yeah, I think I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, I would call it my guides. Uh, definitely, the, you, I, I think that, that that can sort of be crossed with our higher selves um, or spirit guides. I mean, I, I, I'm trusting spirit guides, as, as I learned about this from a, a mediumship perspective. Um, but yeah, either either, I think whatever works, you know, with, I, I've never experienced something as extreme. Some of these stories are amazing. Just, just, uh, like, like the, the caller just said there, um, I haven't experienced anything that extreme, but they seem to be relatively common. You know, we've all heard these things of, of people avoiding accidents from, from, you know, uh, uh, sort of hearing a voice or seeing somebody, um, yeah, amazing stories. There seems to be something to that. Next up, let's go to first-time caller Pamela in Patterson, New Jersey. Hello, Pam. Welcome. Hi. Um, yeah, not that I'm a skeptic, uh, because I've seen intuition at work. And it's um, sometimes it's open to interpretation. And some people have said, oh, well, if you – if my mom had it, and I think I've inherited some abilities in that area. And um, – they said, well, you, you'll win the lottery then. Pick the lottery numbers. Well, it doesn't work that way. I, I think it's equal to, like, signals maybe connected to instinct like animals, and sometimes we connect to it, and it, and it seeps in, and whether we listen to it, and, and it's kind of like a crapshoot. We're not quite sure all the time. Um, but um, not that I'm a skeptic, but I, I just wondered um, with his mom, did he, he check uh, about intruders? Uh, also that time and, and not that I don't believe but obviously he probably did uh, but that kind of, that story was chilling it was really really interesting but um, yeah my my mom sometimes would um, I was going to go to the teachers convention in Atlantic City and my mom just she would pop out with these things she said don't go in a white car and she had no idea my friend had just bought a new white car oh, and we were going to go down there in that vehicle what happened and we decided not to go we took a bus, but you know what happened? A week later, I had an old Fairmont white, and my mom and I were on it on this road that wasn't very wide, oh. um, and, and um, a woman had a stroke, and she smashed into us. Luckily, it wasn't totally head-on, but that happened a week later. So inter intuition is tricky, or, or signs of things is very, very tricky. Um, and then another time, quick story, I... From working in a high school, I have a habit of, uh, of putting my keys around my neck because when you travel around a high school, and um, I'm pretty sure about where I put them. This time, they disappeared, and I was going to the veterinarian place, and um, I couldn't find them. It was the strangest thing. And an hour later, I found it, and I called up the vet's office, and I said, oh, is there still time to come? And they said, oh, good thing you didn't come an hour ago. Uh, they had the hazmat team. Somebody smashed into the gas lines, and there was all kinds of commotion. Oh, uh, and my car probably would have been demolished. So I thanked my mom, who has since passed on. 
I think that was her because she always used to say, if you miss a bus, miss it. And I do pay attention to these things. And um, there's a lot of things out there we don't understand. And recently, physics is now studying nature and how uh, plants know how to bloom or not to bloom when there's going to be a a chill in the air in spring. And um, animals know things that we don't know. We think we all are so knowing. But there are things out there we just don't get. Oh, look at those uh, animals during that Indonesian tsunami that killed 200,000 people. They headed for the hills way before anybody else did. There's a sense there, Phil. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I really like what, what Pamela said there, that her mom said about if you miss the bus, miss it. That's, that's great. I like that. I'll, I'll, I'll try not to steal that. <laughs> um, yeah, really interesting stories. Uh, just, just to go back to Pamela's question, um, about this, the, about my mum and and the night that you know before she the passed. The intruder, yeah, yeah, it's it's such an odd one. Um, of course, I can't say one hundred percent that there was absolutely nobody there. I wasn't, I wasn't there. Um, but knowing, you know, she lived in a very small house. Uh, knowing her behaviour as I did, like I say, she would always kind of change her demeanour if somebody else was. Uh, was around in terms of an intruder that she wasn't aware of uh, they were both leaning in on the call at the same time so she was leaning in from the bottom of the screen and he was leaning in from the top um and and also one thing that sort of plagues me is she would have the security key in a in a box outside where you'd have to sort of you'd have to put in a code to get into the house so a couple of weeks earlier my mom had been talking about waking up at night hearing banging on the front door. And I, I don't know if this is connected or not, but she got kind of freaked out that, that somebody was actually trying to get into the house. And I advised her that if it made her feel better to take the key inside because she was kind of worried about leaving the code and forgetting to scramble it and somebody might be able to get in the house. And this is something that's plagued me ever since. And, and I, I said, okay, well, if it makes you feel better, better bring the key in. And, and she did. And that was one of the reasons why they kind of get into the house the next morning when she when she was having a heart attack. So that's kind of um, a mixed bag for me. But, yeah, I, I, I truly believe that knowing my mom, knowing the islands, and plus we were in another lockdown, that there was, there was, there was definitely no one with her. Phil, we're going to take a quick short break and then come back and wrap things up with you in a moment. Phil's website is his name, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Phil Webster. Phil, when people go to your website, can they email you there too as well? Yeah, they can. There's a, there's a, a contact option. Uh, we've received a few emails already from people who've read the book, and uh, I'm very much enjoying uh, hearing people's stories. Letting Glow, where do people get the book? Uh, it's available everywhere, all the usual booksellers. If they haven't physically got it in store, then you should be able to order it from their websites. And, of course, it's on Amazon. Keep in touch with us, Phil, all right? Yeah, thank you. This has been a, a really big honor. I'm a huge fan of yours, Beyond Belief, all of that stuff. And, and yeah, really, uh, really grateful. Thank you. Good job. Phil Webster. His life changed when he had his events that happened a long time ago. Just truly remarkable. Well, as you know, this is the 54 anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Truly a remarkable feat. I had the pleasure back in May of 2010 to chat with Buzz Aldrin, And there's nothing more exciting than knowing that we had men that walked on the moon. Contact right. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. 
Roger Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And of course, that's the Apollo 11 team of Neil Armstrong and Colonel Buzz Aldrin. And of course, Michael Collins was up above in the command module. Buzz Aldrin, educated at West Point, graduated with honors in 1951. He flew saber jets in 66 combat missions in the Korean conflict. He earned his doctorate in astronautics from Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Manned Space Rendezvous. In 1963, Buzz was selected by NASA as one of the early astronauts. And, of course, as you know, the historic July 20th, 1969 landing on the moon. Truly an incredible moment. I remember there watching television with my dad at the... uh, age of 19 years old, watching that all happen. Here's Buzz Aldrin. He's been on the program before, and I had the honor of being with Buzz a little more than a year ago on Larry King's show as we were talking about life in space. Buzz, welcome back, my friend. How are you, Colonel? I'm very good. Uh, Thank you very much. I really don't use my military uh, rank much uh, these days. Uh, uh, The the services hadn't seen fit to... uh, equalize us out a bit uh, by uh, elevating those military people who reach the moon. Uh, I mean, 22 people out of 24 to uh, some higher that is amazing. level rank. Well, thank you for serving, by the way. And we've got uh, Howard Bloom here. And Howard, uh, thank you for bringing Buzz along and uh, to talk about this important thing. And uh, Howard was uh, kidding that uh, we were going to talk about just dancing uh, with the stars, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, you you started your segment with uh, some quotes, and uh, my segment happened to be uh, just taken from the checklist, whereas the other individuals expressed uh, some kind of uh, longstanding communication. I wonder why you don't uh, see fit to use the words magnificent desolation as a description of the uh, magnificence of the human race. Uh, advancing to a point where they could uh, build airplanes and uh, fly in the sky and rockets and put people into orbit and then send people to uh, be on the surface of the moon and yet look out and see the most lifeless spot that I have ever seen or that any earthling has ever seen, something that hasn't changed in hundreds of thousands of years, a little bit more dust, But it's the most lifeless spot, very, very hot, going to very, very cold, two weeks of each, no air, uh, nothing of life whatsoever. Uh, Why we think that that's a place that uh, we should return to when robots can be controlled very nicely. Uh, we, We went there 40 years ago. Uh, I, I really failed to see where, uh, Uh, an advancing space power like we charted ourselves to become in the 60s and 70s, then after consolidating with a reusable uh, large system to take things and people into uh, orbit and then building uh, 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 an unprecedented object in space called an International Space Station, neither of which really lived up to expectations. But why do we feel we're exhibiting leadership uh, by by going back to the moon again? 
Buzz, if if uh, if you were running NASA today and and you had a blank checkbook, what would you do? How would you develop the program? Well, the Challenger accident occurred. I mean, the, um, excuse me, the Columbia accident occurred on the first of February, '03, and after uh, twenty months of study, uh, the the uh, NASA concluded together with the White House, that something needed to be done differently. And so on the 14th of January, 04, the president, without great fanfare, just out of NASA headquarters, uh, uh, put forth his vision for space exploration, which consisted of uh, uh, doing what the accident board said, which was to retire the space shuttle orbiter uh, by the end of 2010, that's uh, over six years away in uh, January of '04, uh, and then uh, uh, hopefully have finished the space station by that time, design a new spacecraft by 2015, mm-hmm. and then land on the moon by 2020. Now, looking at it, after having uh, taken so long to get the shuttle going, uh, almost six years without flying at all before the shuttle started flying and, and then getting the space station going, not in eight years for $8 billion with eight people, but $100 billion oh for for six people. And uh, we're, we're trying to maintain six people there and uh, not not exactly on schedule. But anyway, we decided to go back to the moon because it looks as though uh, the Indians and the Chinese and maybe others might want to do the same thing. Now, why would we really want to do that when it looks like, after close examination of the finances involved and the delays that have taken in, in executing this vision for space exploration, it looks as though uh, we couldn't get to the moon until 2030, probably, or after, and the Chinese would be there to welcome us. That's true. Now, is this exactly what uh, we we should inspire our young people with? And I don't want to stop there. We've got a gap right now that looks like it's five to seven years before, while we have to use the Russians to fly to our space station, and the Soyuz spacecraft that uh, is not all that uh, safe, and... Uh, after that, the spacecraft that uh, NASA has been studying in this Constellation program would splash down back in the ocean again. After 30 years 30 of landing years. nicely on a runway, we're going to go back after flying with the Russians to our space station and splash down in the ocean. That That's not we're going the backwards. country that I went to the moon for. We're going backwards, Buzz. And, and and that's and that's a shame. We we're going to lose that that advantage we had. There's a simple simple explanation for it. And what would that be? The accident board said, separate crew and cargo. Okay. Yeah. Now that was probably a good idea, but uh, putting crew and cargo together in the shuttle enabled us to deploy satellites to bring other satellites back, to take the Hubble telescope up there, and then to get it ready, deploy it, then go visit it, 
uh, several times and service it. Uh, it. It enabled us to, to go to other space stations, the Mir space station, then begin to build our own space station uh, chunk by chunk over a long period of time. That was all possible because we had crew and cargo together. Not that safe because you can't abort and get off of the the launch vehicle very fast when you have to carry all that cargo with you inside the orbiter. So it was a wise decision to say separate crew and cargo in the spacecraft. But they added a phrase, on the launch vehicle. Now this opened the door for a study that had been taking place that I was aware of that was going to put a crew on one solid rocket and then put the lander and everything else on a bigger, much bigger rocket, build two rockets that were quite a bit different from what had been launching the shuttle. And and I uh, complained to the president of the accident board, an admiral, and an admiral who was in charge of NASA exploration. Well, nothing happened. They listened to me. That's fine. But then the new administrator to NASA went ahead and did exactly what he had studied before. He charted a program with an Ares-1 rocket and an Ares-5 rocket. Now, the smaller one began quickly to not be enough for the growing weight of the uh, spacecraft that was going to land in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So it had to be improved, upgraded significantly, and it didn't even have enough fuel, as Apollo did, to have the command module put the command module and the lander into lunar orbit. It didn't have enough fuel to do that, so they had to put the fuel in the lander, which made it monstrous size and made the big rocket even bigger. It now, we ran into troubles, and it obvious we were not going to have a spacecraft ready by the time the orbiter was going to be retired. No matter how much money you put into it, and this is not a good time to be pumping extra, extra money. The president's budget does put some extra money in, uh, uh, not as much as uh, the Augustine Commission ad, uh, wanted yeah. advised uh, that they do. But why in the world would we not want to terminate this Ares-1, Ares-5 rocket, save money, and then, as long as we're going to build a new set of rockets, let's retire the orbiter. Now, a year ago, I felt it was a good idea maybe to stretch out some of the orbiter missions. That was when there were five, at least five flights left. Well, we didn't do that. And now there are only two, and it's too late to stretch out the shuttle flights to make any meaningful impact on the five- to seven-year uh, delay. And, and the thought was of not having a vehicle or a craft to be able to take astronauts into space for God knows how long is, is Yeah, but we did have them. But we did, exactly. We did study the orbital space plane with, with a, a, a Boeing runway landing craft on top of a Boeing rocket and a Lockheed runway landing craft on top of a, a Lockheed rocket. But we canceled those programs, along with another even better solution that, that my company had. 
But the answer to that was, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to go back to the moon with two rockets instead of one and uh, build a spacecraft that won't land on a runway. It'll land in, in the ocean. Buzz, why don't they have the plan? It, it doesn't seem that difficult to come up with a great plan to get us back into space. Why aren't they doing it? There was a spacecraft that was a derivative of a Russian spacecraft 20, 25 years ago that was fished out of the ocean after it made subscale flights into orbit. We re-engineered it at Langley Research Center and, and studied it for at least eight years, $800 million, a lot of wind tunnel tests. It is considered by most people that I talk to as the best spacecraft that we could build and and uh, internationals could lease it from us and it's a lifting body and it lands on a runway uh, and, and we could have had that by now oh sure but we don't have it now but all we want to talk about is landing in the ocean after flying with <laughs> the Russians that's not the kind of program that I want to see out of keeping the the course staying the course with the constellation program or saying well let's let's just fly the shuttle for another 5 years uh, it's kind of too late to do that and this plan to go to an asteroid and maybe eventually get to mars and i like your idea by the way of going to phobos well uh, i set a plan in motion that i believe could have put us uh, uh, landing a habitat on Phobos in twenty in the in the fall of twenty twenty two, then we could man it with three people for a year and a half in twenty twenty five, twenty seven, and twenty nine, and then we could uh, land on the surface of Mars in twenty thirty one. Now I'll give you two more periods of uh, two more possible launch. Uh, period, sure. and, and say we ought to get there by 2025. I mean, I'm sorry, 2035. They're gonna; those years are gonna come up awfully fast, too. Well, but what is 2035? Well, it happens to be 66 years from when we landed on the moon. Buzz Aldrin is 93 years old today. Neil Armstrong passed away in 2012 at 82. Michael Collins, who was in the command module. Passed away in 2021. He was 90 years old. Great Americans. For Dan Galanti, Gina Salvati, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Ladasur, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burroughs, Tim Benall, George Knapp, and Ian Punnett. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.